a series in Revelation chapters 2. Well, today we read about church number 3 in our sermon series in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Church number 3 is the church in Pergamum. First was the church in Ephesus. The Christians there had done many important things well, especially patiently enduring hardship, discerning true teaching from false teaching. Those things were all admirable. But for their strengths, somewhere down the line, the church in Ephesus forgot how to love. And so Jesus calls them to repent. Now, last week was the church in Smyrna. In that city, Christians faced persecution from every side. It seemed the whole world was against them. They were driven into material poverty. They were slandered. Some were thrown in jail, all because of their faith in Jesus. But Jesus' message to them in the midst of their suffering was pretty clear. Do not fear. Be faithful unto death. And keep your eyes fixed on the crown of life waiting for you in eternity. In their day and age, the Romans, the Jews, and even Satan himself had their sights set on the Christians in Smyrna. But Jesus challenged and encouraged them to stand firm and conquer. But the city of Pergamum, the location of our third church, wasn't much smaller than Ephesus. Some may have claimed it was even more beautiful than Smyrna. But like the two churches before it, there was a message that this church needed to hear. And I might argue that of the seven messages to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, this one might be one of the most relevant to churches and Christians today. Why is that? What does Jesus say to them? And what makes it so important for us to listen to him as well? So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Feel free to use the Bibles here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Sunday morning is a stabilizing force in our lives. We have unpredictable weeks. We have unpredictable months. We have things come up in life that none of us see coming. Some of them are just little tiny blips on the radar. Some of them are big monumental obstacles. But Father, through the ups and downs and the storms of life, you are consistent. You are reliable. You are stable. You are solid. Father, thank you for that weekly reminder that we can trust you, that we can rest in you, that we can turn to you, and that you hear us. And Father, you hear us because of what your son Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. None of us is worthy of a hearing with you in and of ourselves, but you listen to us because you are merciful, you are gracious, you are kind, and the cross of Christ is the biggest showing of that. And so Father, as we read your word this morning, as we read Jesus' message to the church in Pergamum, I pray that we would listen to it as well, that we would dig deep into these words and find what Christ might be saying to us at this much different time in a much different place, but we may need to hear some of the same things. So Father, give us wisdom and humility and discernment as we read your word. Let us have ears to hear what your spirit says to our church. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. 
Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They were mentioned in Ephesus as well. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. If you haven't noticed yet, Jesus introduces himself differently to each of these seven churches. To the church in Ephesus, He introduced himself as him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's a beautiful image to think about. To the church in Smyrna, he introduced himself as the first and the last who died and came to life. Very reassuring to hear that, very comforting. But to the church in Pergamum, he introduces himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Why do you think Jesus would give such an intimidating introduction? And what's going on with the sword? Well, John briefly mentioned a two-edged sword back in chapter 1. But if we want a clue about what the sword is doing here, we can look at a different passage near the end of the book. This is Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven... Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So just to recap what we just read. Jesus is riding a white stallion, judging, making war, wearing a robe dipped in blood, leading the armies of heaven, striking down and ruling over the nations with a rod of iron, and treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's not exactly the warm and fuzzy, meek and mild Jesus that we usually think of, is it? We prefer to read about the Jesus who welcomes little children to sit on his lap and 
pets sheep and talks about loving your neighbor and serving the poor. That Jesus is much more reassuring and comfortable. Now, it's true that Jesus does all those things. He talks about all those things. But that's not all that he does in the pages of Scripture. And this image of Jesus and the message to the church in Pergamum isn't meant to be cute and cuddly. This image of Jesus is one of power, righteousness, and glory. And just like we saw in chapter 19, this image of Jesus is an image of judgment. Think about it. What does a sword do? A sword is a tool for separating one thing from another. And no matter how uncomfortable the thought makes us, we can't just explain away the shock of this imagery of Jesus holding a sword. Jesus is looking at the church in Pergamum, and he is threatening violent judgment at his hand if they do not repent. There's another passage that is well-known and well-loved, talks about a sword. Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The one to whom we must give account. That's another passage about judgment. The point is this. In Revelation 2, 12 through 17, Jesus is threatening to come to the church in Pergamum and judge them if they do not repent. His judgment will be just. His judgment will be right. But it will not be pretty. So what exactly did the church in Pergamum do wrong? What is it that makes Jesus so angry with them? What sin do they have to repent of? What wickedness is so horrible that Jesus would break out a two-edged sword and threaten to judge them with it and say that he is going to make war on them? Well, the sin is that there's a faction of the church in Pergamum that is guilty of following false teachers. The reference to Balaam and Balak comes from the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 31, roughly. Balaam is the famous pagan prophet who didn't listen to his talking donkey and ended up looking like a real... Read the story for yourself. Balak, the evil king of Moab in the book of Numbers... He tried to pay Balaam to call down a curse on Israel. That way they would defeat them in battle. But ultimately, the prophet Balaam, he refuses to curse Israel. He won't call down a curse unless God tells him to. But before you think that Balaam is too much of a hero, we learn later in the book of Numbers that even though Balaam didn't curse Israel the way Balak wanted him to, he still found a way to hurt God's people. Balaam didn't curse them, but he did advise the Moabites to seduce the Israelites into idolatry and sexual immorality. And in Numbers chapter 25, the Moabites succeeded. Again, it seems kind of obscure. It seems kind of confusing, this reference to this strange Old Testament story. 
But here's the point of it. The Christians in Pergamum have fallen into the same sins that the Israelites fell into in the book of Numbers. A new kind of Balaam has arisen. And some of the Christians in Pergamum are following him, worshiping false gods and committing sexual immorality. Meanwhile, the Christians in Pergamum who haven't committed these sins, the ones who haven't done these things, aren't doing much of anything to hold their brothers and sisters accountable. They've made little to no effort to pull them back from the destruction that they're bound for. So if you put these things all together, that's why the church in Pergamum, in no uncertain terms, is called to repent. And they're called to repent before it's too late. Now be honest. You might think that Jesus' reaction to this sounds a little bit harsh. That's it? That's why Jesus is threatening to come and judge the church in Pergamum? All because some of the people started following a false teacher. Some of them went to a dinner party where maybe some false gods would have been worshipped. And some of them maybe had a little bit too much fun with their bodies. If that's all it was, doesn't the sword sound like a little bit of an overreaction? Why can't Jesus just give this church a slap on the wrist and move along? Well, truthfully, this harsh-sounding threat of violent judgment is an act of grace and mercy towards this church. Call it a wake-up call, if you'd like. Call it a form of tough love. But you have to admit it, that sometimes stubborn and experienced sinners like us, we need a bit of a shake before we truly realize how far we've fallen. And if this message is what it takes to wake the Christians in Pergamum up from their slumber, if this is the kind of image they need to see in order to bring them back from the brink of destruction, then one day they'll look back and they'll be glad that Jesus broke out that sword, even if it frightened them at the time. They'll be glad that Jesus threatened to judge them, if that's what it takes to help them actually avoid judgment. So that's the bad of the church in Pergamum. But what about the good? Because remember, not everyone has fallen into the false teaching and sin that Jesus is so angry about. Not everyone has followed this new Balaam. The church in Pergamum isn't completely lost, at least not yet. Because along with the errors and along with the sins, there are some good things happening there that Jesus commends. We saw in the passage that some have stayed faithful to Jesus. Some have held on to the faith. Now, this is particularly commendable when you consider what's happening around the Christians in Pergamum. One of them, a man by the name of Antipas, has already been killed for his faith. We read about that in the passage. Revelation doesn't give us the details of who Antipas was, doesn't give us the details of how he died. But legend says that he refused to renounce his faith in Christ, even when he was boiled alive. Now, you can't help but wonder, did some of the Christians who rejected their faith, followed bad teachers, worshipped false gods, and commit great sins, did they do that out of fear? 
Did they do that out of peer pressure? Did they do those things? Did they compromise because they didn't want to end up like Antipas? They saw what happened to him. And if they have to worship some false gods to avoid a fate like that, then they'll worship some false gods. And then the fact that some of them have remained faithful is also particularly commendable, given the regular opportunities they had to explore other gods. The phrase Satan's throne in this passage seems kind of bizarre at first glance. That phrase may refer to the altar of Zeus located smack dab in the middle of the city. So in a city where one Christian has already been killed for his faith, a city where it would be so much easier if you just worshipped Zeus like everyone else, just blend in, remaining faithful to Christ in a city like that is certainly commendable. Staying faithful to him when some of your brothers and sisters are abandoning him, when one of your brothers has already been killed for his faith, and where there are so many opportunities to worship other gods, and life would be so much easier if you just went with the crowd. Being faithful in an environment like that can't be easy. But Jesus looks at them and says that it will be worth it. The faithful will get to eat of the hidden manna, another Old Testament reference. In Exodus chapter 16, after God led the Israelites out of Egypt, he provided them with bread from heaven. In the time of the New Testament, when Revelation was written, some Jews believed that that manna from heaven still existed. It was hidden away somewhere with the long lost Ark of the Covenant. And they dreamed of getting to eat of the same heavenly bread that their ancestors ate in Exodus. I think it might be kind of stale by then, but that's just me. Now, that does sound pretty cool, doesn't it? It's a cool thing to believe. But the bread that Jesus offers in Revelation and the bread that Jesus offers elsewhere in the New Testament is so much better. Look at John chapter 6, starting in verse 26. Jesus is speaking to a group of people who know a lot about the story of Exodus. They know about the manna from heaven. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is right after Jesus fed 5,000 people. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jump forward again to verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then one more time, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread that Jesus offers those who follow him, those who believe in him, 
the Christians in Pergamum who repent of their sin and keep the faith. The bread that Jesus offers them is so much better than any other bread that they could ever find. Any other bread that they could ever eat. The manna in the wilderness? Yeah, it was great. It nourished their ancestors. It kept them from starving. But those people still died. Jesus says, the bread that I offer you will never get stale. It will never cease to nourish you. It will fulfill your hunger. It will sustain you in eternity. So come and get bread from me. Come and get hidden manna that only he can offer. And he can only offer it by his death and resurrection. That's the invitation that he gives to the church in Pergamum. And that's the invitation that he still gives to us to this very day. But then on top of the hidden manna, this heavenly bread, Jesus says that they will get a white stone with a new name written on it. Now, interpreters don't know much of anything about what this means, what the white stone symbolizes. But some have wondered if this stone might serve as a kind of invitation or an RSVP. It's your way of getting into this wonderful meal with Christ himself. You show your stone, it has your name on it, and you get invited to sit at the table. A white stone sounds like a clean slate. It sounds like a fresh start. And a new name means a new identity, no longer marked by the sins that once separated us from God. Those who trust in Christ, those who come to him for heavenly bread, those who keep the faith, they look forward to this reward. And they look forward to it with confidence. So all in all, the church in Pergamum, it's kind of a mixed bag. There's much that needs to be repented of, but there's also a lot to commend. Some people have compromised their beliefs, followed false teachers, and committed grave sins worthy of harsh judgment. But others have held fast to Christ, even when that's gotten other Christians killed. And even when they had other opportunities to worship other gods constantly in their face. But the same call is issued to all of them. And the same call is still issued to Christians and churches today. Hear this message. Repent of your sin. Obey Jesus. And hold fast to his name. If you don't, there is a bitter judgment waiting for you. There is nothing to look forward to. But if you do, there is a glorious feast with heavenly bread. And your invitation is written in stone. But what does this mean for us? Again, how do we practically apply this? What makes this so relevant to churches like ours? Well, I'll make a couple observations. Number one is that Jesus takes false teaching, false worship, and sin very seriously in this passage. He takes it seriously enough to break out a two-edged sword and threaten violent judgment toward the church guilty of it. And again, we shouldn't attempt to explain away or water down or domesticate this image of Jesus in the book of Revelation. After all, if we're being totally honest, Jesus says some similarly frightening words about judgment in the Gospels too. You know, it's not just Paul who's concerned about 
false teaching. It's not just annoying people who you think nitpick too much about what the Bible says. You may often wish that your fellow believers would just lighten up about sound doctrine and right worship and holiness. They get too worked up over these things that really don't matter. All we need to do is just be nice to each other. Well, maybe those people who take those things so seriously, they just might be right to do so. Because in his message to the church in Pergamum, Jesus takes those things seriously as well. And of course, if Jesus takes these things seriously in that church, then we ought to take them seriously in our church too. If we seek to avoid the error of the church in Pergamum, we must be, edu- must be thoroughly dedicated and educated in the truth. We must be able to recognize false teaching when we see it. And we must be willing to hold others accountable for their sin and also be willing to be held accountable for ours. If Jesus takes false teaching and false worship and false living seriously enough to threaten judgment with a two-edged sword, then it's safe to say that we ought to take it seriously as well. Now again, like in Pergamum, faithfulness to Christ in our environment won't be easy, but it will still be worth it. Now, obviously, our situation isn't identical to theirs. No one in this church has recently been killed for their faith, at least not that I know of. However, we do face some of the same temptations that those Christians faced. There are still false teachers out there, and it is easier for you to find them, and easier for them to find you than it ever has been before. There is no shortage of modern-day Balaams who will try to lure you into bad doctrine, bad worship, and bad living. They might dress it up. They might justify it. It might look really good and look really attractive. But beware. And like the Christians in Pergamum, we have lots of different religious options spread before us, options other than Jesus. We're told that we can pick the one that best suits us, that we can pick and choose little values or little virtues from all these different religious systems and mix them all together into a religious gumbo and make it our own. But that is a lie. It was a lie back then, and it's still a lie today. Holding fast to faith in Christ won't be easy. It is not for the faint of heart. But it will be worth it when we see our new name written on that white stone. It will be worth it when we taste that heavenly bread. Now as we close, think back one more time to that image of Jesus. Holding a sword, threatening judgment against those who refuse to repent. Again, we'd be lying if we said it's not disturbing. We'd be lying if we said it's not intimidating to think of Jesus holding that sword. But keep in mind that the Jesus who holds that sword, demanding that sinners repent in Revelation chapter 2, he died for those same sinners on the cross. The Jesus who threatens to judge the church in Pergamum took God's judgment for their sin upon himself. And he took God's judgment for your sin upon himself too. That Jesus who holds the sword That Jesus in all of his power, his glory, his righteousness. 
He is on your side if you believe in him. He wields the sword of God's judgment for our sins. Only after he's already taken God's judgment for our sins onto himself. We can be faithful because he was faithful. We can conquer because he has already conquered. And we look forward to glory. We look forward to joy. We look forward to a new name written in stone at a meal featuring heavenly bread. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for a book like Revelation that is very different from what we usually read. It challenges us to expand our imaginations about who you are and what you do. It challenges us with imagery that we're not used to thinking about, not used to seeing. We're not used to the thought of your son holding a sword and threatening judgment, but here it is. But Father, I pray that we would read this word, that again, as you say in the book of Revelation, that we would have an ear to hear what your spirit says to the churches, what it says to us, what it says to our church. And Father, I pray that you would give us Humility, wisdom, and discernment. Give us humility to listen and obey what your word has to say. But also give us confidence that this Jesus in all of his power and all of his glory is on our side. And there is nothing more reassuring than that. So Father, again, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. Direct us away from sin and direct us away from false teaching. Protect us from those temptations. And Father, help us keep our eyes fixed on you and fixed on your Son. And understand you rightly, worship you rightly, and live in a way that honors you. We glorify you. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.